Hey everyone, today's special edition of the Ringer NBA show hosted by yours truly, Bill Simmons, is brought to you by SeatGeek, uh, the presenting sponsor of the BS Podcast and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music, which is two taps on your phone. You can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event and enter the event using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Again, do everything on your phone. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Don't forget about Ringer.com. It's TV week on Ringer.com. And guess what else is coming on the Ringer on our podcast network? We hired Chris Vernon to do podcasts for us on this, the Ringer NBA show. He'll be starting later this month, twice a week, and then starting in January, it'll be three times a week. And then on top of that, he's going to join our college football podcast as well. So subscribe to this feed and the college football podcast as well, because Chris Vernon's going to be on there. And if you don't know him, uh, super entertaining, super smart. Uh, I'm a big fan. He's going to have a bunch of guests on this show. We are... We are uh, going to take this podcast to another level. So please subscribe to The Ringer NBA Show and write suggestions on iTunes about people you'd want to see here. Uh, last thing, any given Wednesday, my new HBO show. Uh, we have only done 10 episodes, so I, it still counts as new. But Wednesday, uh, September, what's Wednesday? What's Wednesday, Tate? September 22nd? September 22nd. September 21st. Wednesday, September 21st. Any given Wednesday, 10 p.m., HBO, Kevin Durant. That seems relevant because you're listening to the Ringer NBA show. You must care about uh, the NBA. Kevin Durant will be on with Nas. Oh, yeah, Nas, one of the five greatest rappers of all time. They're together, and we also have Vince Staples. So, yeah, that's happening. Wednesday night, 10 p.m. Uh, check that out, and you can watch the re-airs on HBO, HBO2, HBO On Demand, HBO Go and HBO Now. Shout out to Callaway. Shout shout out to Miller Lite. And now, here he is, Brad Stevens, the Celtics coach. Here's the podcast I taped with him at the end of last week. Here we go. All right, first time this has happened on the BS Podcast. The president, Brad Stevens, how are you? How you doing, Bill? Thanks for having me. I call you the president on Twitter because I... uh, I, I feel like not only are you in charge of the Celtics, you should just be in charge of the whole country, what you did these last three years. It was so important to Celtics fans. It was amazing to watch on TV. See, I, you're humble. You're going to get embarrassed. But I just I just had to thank you for everything you've done for the Celts. Much appreciated. Well, as you know, as, as you know, because you followed the game so close for so long, and yeah. as everybody else knows, it's about the players that are playing. And we've been really fortunate. I actually just was sitting down with Danny and it's amazing how many people that have played here over the last three years, but really in the last 18 months, it's, it's been a, a much, you know, there's been a lot more continuity um, and a lot more stability in a roster. And it's, and it's fun to now have guys that are back for their second, third year in a row. And right. hopefully we can keep building some momentum here. All right. That's the only serious sports radio coach answer I'm allowing you. Now, now we're now we're getting into good, it. Well, good luck. Now you we're getting got the into wrong it. Guys, no, you know. no, no. I'm going to get you. I, I've studied. I've studied right. your pregame and your postgame. I got I got a scouting report from Sean Grandy. I, I know I know well, how Grandy to get some and stuff. I, Grandy and I dig into deep topics sometimes. Yeah. So college versus pro. You got a uh-huh. 30 game season in college. You have guys that you get to coach for three, four years 
at a pop, basically. Get more time to prepare. You don't have to worry about trade rumors. Is it just easier to coach college? I would say no. The jobs are very different and the challenges are very different. Obviously, when you're in the midst of that 82-game season and you do have some, um, you're, you know, your roster is fluid, especially in those first 18 months I was here, those are really challenging times, and you don't experience anything like that during a typical college season. Right. Um, and I think the one thing that I've probably learned, Bill, is that that it's the two, you know, we didn't just coach those guys for four years in college. You knew them for six years. You know, a lot of times you've got juniors that committed to you. By the time they walked on campus, you, you knew them, you knew their families, you could coach them and they knew how you were going to coach them. And there wasn't as much, you know, you're not building a relationship on the fly like maybe you are if you trade for someone at the trade deadline. I I tell the story all the time about when Isaiah got traded to Boston, Isaiah, you know, we were out west. Isaiah had to fly from Phoenix to Boston to get his physical. We watched um, our offensive playbook or just the parts that we wanted him to know by two days later over FaceTime. He was in our video room here in Waltham, Massachusetts, and I was in a hotel room wherever we were by then. Um, and then he came back the next day, got in late, so I didn't get a chance to see him. I met him the morning, a Sunday morning in L.A. We played the Lakers that night. He gets kicked out of the game. I remember that. And 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 we're playing great up to that point. I mean, we're we're excited about the way he's playing. And then he gets kicked out of the game. And then I'm walking back through the tunnel, and I remember turning to Jay Larinaga, um, one of our assistant coaches, and say, "Well, how do you handle this? Like, I met Isaiah this morning, <laughs> right. and you know, like, and you know, if I was if I had recruited Isaiah, knew him really well, I would probably know what makes him tick and and how to approach the situation and everything else. Well, I was lucky that Isaiah is who he is, and Isaiah. Right when I, right when we walked through that door, said, "Hey guys, that shouldn't happen. My fault. I'll make sure it doesn't happen again." And, um, you know, and away we go. And and I think that 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 was great on his part because it took a lot off my shoulders because yeah. you know I'm sitting there walking in there like, well, this will be interesting. You know, I don't Isaiah doesn't know me and I don't know him, and when we're just going to get to learn each other. And unfortunately, you have to learn each other and grow together pretty quickly in this gig. Most college coaches fail when they come to the NBA. When I was living in Boston in the in the 97 to 99 range, when Patino was there, he was trying to coach the team like it was a college team. And he was trying to do the press, and he's shuttling guys in and out. And it was almost like, like he'd kind of lost what, what worked in college, which is the continuity and not realizing that if you're tra- if you're trading people all the time, everyone else on the team is going to be worried about being traded. How did you handle that when, especially that first year, you had so much turnover? How do you handle that with minutes and all that stuff? Was that the toughest learning curve you had? Well, I think there's so many tough learning curves. Um, you know, again, the 82-game schedule and, and when you, you know, it's so unique to anything that, you know, you could ever be prepared for just just hearing about it and talking about it. You know, you look at some games as a coach or a player and you realize how difficult they're going to be just because of where they're placed in the schedule or maybe where you were staying the night before or how many nights in a row that you've been traveling. 
Um, but you know, Steve Kerr. Hold on, Steve Kerr calls those schedule losses. Do you call? He's just <laughs> like you look at the schedule and go, "Oh my God, fourth and five nights, we're flying from L.A. to Dallas. We have no chance in this game." You know, one of the things that I think we have tried to do with that though is is turn it around and say, "Hey, the, you know, this is the the typical way that people would look at it. Is this is we we have a, an excuse, right?" But I think that if you want to be like special and you want to maximize yourself as a team, then then you look forward to that as a challenge and and not as an excuse. Yeah. And I think that this group has been especially good about looking at it that way. The thing that I'll say kind of going back to the previous question yeah. is that when I when I came here, you know, I, I was 36 years old. I had only coached at one place in my life, but I had incredible mentors who taught me to look at basketball not only through a great lens of how to be, how to teach it, but also not to look at it through the lens that maybe we had always had. You know, they they challenged me to think about it differently. They they the guys that I worked for treated our players so well. You know, it was a really empowering environment. You felt that not only as a player but as an assistant coach. And then coming here, you know, you talk about you know the the college coaches that had come before that that didn't stay long. Whatever the case may be, I, I never really looked at it as you know. You can't do it, or 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 that is a failure because I've coached against Coach Patino, and I know he's one of the best coaches in the world. And, yeah, you know we couldn't score on either. We couldn't score on offense, and we couldn't stop him on defense. And you know, a lot of times it is the situation you're in. Um, it is uh, the the commitment um, that those people that you're working for have to you, and and how they understand that you're going to work every day to get better at this and, and, and progress is, is hopefully going to happen if you just keep, you know, pounding the rock and grinding on it and grinding on it. And um, I really felt like when I took this job that this, this place had such a great uh, history with our ownership group and with Danny of, you know, being able to not ride the emotional roller coaster of the up and downs of an 82-game season, but rather say, We've got good people in place, whether it's the assistants, the athletic trainers, the strength coaches, whoever's in the coaching seat, whatever the case may be, and we're all going to work on this thing together, and we're going to make it the best we can be. And that's been validated, you know, since taking that job, and it's not like that everywhere. You know, one thing that really hurt Patino was they paid him so much money and made such a big deal about hiring him. I really felt like the players resented it a little bit, and and there was a little bit of a, hey, we're the ones playing. We're the stars here. Who are you? And with you, once you once you started to have success with Boston, I was really interested to see how you were going to handle that because people like me are calling you the president. Everyone's like, this guy's unbelievable. And you kept such a low profile. Were you conscious of not trying to get any attention whatsoever? No. You know what? It really is. And it's, it is about the guys on your team and them maximizing themselves and sometimes you know a guy that hasn't played as big of a role at another in another team comes here with a chip on their shoulder yeah. they have they are in the NBA for a reason they can do things that other people playing basketball can't do and 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 sometimes it's just about piecing those guys together and then soaring with your strengths as you work to get better at those other areas that you have to manage and we just i think we've been fortunate to to hit on a lot of those guys a lot of those guys that you know, for whatever reason, when they've gotten here, they've really taken off. And but they also did so because they are so.
so motivated to do well because of a chip that's been there for a while, but probably just gotten bigger when they didn't get opportunities elsewhere, whether it's Jay Crowder at, at Dallas or, you know, Evan Turner coming off his time at Indiana and, and Isaiah is a good example. He got opportunity, but maybe not, you know, maybe was an even better fit here than anywhere else. I right. will say this from, from my perspective, Bill, the, you know, and people always ask, are you are you concerned about getting criticized, and are you concerned about you know the pressure of coaching? I think it makes you just as squeamish to be praised because at the end of the day, coaches know. I mean, we know we know that we're only as good as the guys that are busting their ass out on the court, and and you know we're going to give everything we have to help put them in position to do well. But those are the guys that are winning games, right? And it does seem like. You met, you mentioned about guys with a chip on their shoulder. Now this can go one of two ways in the NBA, right? Like sometimes guys have a chip on their shoulder and they're also crazy and they just can't fit into a team framework. You guys seem to have targeted over and over again competitive guys who A, just hadn't found the right team yet or B, just weren't being used correctly. And I think Evan Turner is a great example. I I had a built-in opinion of Evan Turner when, when the Celtics got him. I was like, this guy... I watched him in Indiana. He seemed completely lost. He was on his way out of the league. You figured out he needs the ball in his hands. Um, why do you guys figure out how to use players correctly? And yet, I uh, see you're, now you're going to weasel out of this answer. I got to ask this differently. Yep, I um, sure am. I'm uh, already working on my way. Yeah, yeah. Away. I'm not letting you weasel. Um, how much right. time do you spend when you get a player thinking about how to play their strengths toward what you're doing? So every, you know, we we talk all the time when we're deciding whether it's drafting or whether it's as part of a trade or whether it's part of a free agent signing is how can we fit their strengths into the team and and, and really focusing and honing in what their strengths are. And is it Evan's a, is it Evan's one a strength or example? is it one strength no, or are you looking be. at like two it or three? Be. Yeah. Well, it can be. I mean, you know, certain sometimes you get a. You know, a guy that's just a great knockdown shooter and doesn't do other things quite as well. Well, you, you gotta you gotta figure out a way to maximize how he impacts the game on both ends of the floor. But but Evan was a unique example because I had watched Evan play since he was in early years in high school and had watched him go from a guy that wasn't overly highly thought of to a Big Ten recruit, yeah, to a guy that struggled his freshman year at Ohio State and really tried to struggle to find his niche in college to getting the ball as a junior and being their point guard because of an injury to their point guard, I believe, as a junior, and then being national player of the year and ended up being the second pick. So, And his coach in college was my first boss, Thad Mata. So we, you know, I guess that was an advantage of having been on the recruiting trail for that long and watching him grow up and knowing that, hey, this guy has a lot of strengths. And, yeah. and I think the one thing that you know no we're not immune to is right we i mean we we have the internet we read the papers whatever the case may be is that we're all quick to um we're all quick to scrutinize we're all quick to assume one opinion instead of looking at it through a different lens trying to figure out okay th- this this guy's really good for a reason and yeah. and and trying to maximize that and to Evan's credit, and Evan's a great example, and you know we could not be happier for him with what 
what he was able to do in, 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 in signing and, and what he signed for and everything else because he, he, was, he was a consummate teammate. He was the ultimate teammate, and he just worked hard every day to help our team. And I think he felt good about how he was going to be um, utilized within our system and everything else, but he still, regardless of whether he was starting or coming off the bench, just did it every single day and never said a word about it. And what was cool about where he went, he went to Portland for, I think, like 70 million bucks. It's actually a good team for him because I think he's going to have the ball in his hands because their guards like to play off the ball. I was really worried he was going to go to a team that had a ball-dominant point guard and he'd be in the situation he was in in Indiana where he's standing on the side because that's not his game. Have you, have you had a guy, you've been there three years now, was there a guy you brought in that you just couldn't totally figure out how to play to their strengths and, you fr- and you're frustrated about it now? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that any time that you have guys that ultimately are no longer here that may have been playing a bigger role or whatever the case may be, you feel like you, know, you, you, you wish that that could have ma- been maximized even better. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that, that that's a really good question. I'd say a little bit of everybody, probably. But oh, no that was a weird. You weaseled out of that one. Yeah, I knew you were going to do that. I'm good at that. You know, I'm good at that. Well, because well, it's the political side, right? No, and I know well, that's why you're the president. So, um, there you go. So the other, but the other thing is, I think you think about that with your own players all the time. Yeah. Like you think about why why can't we be a, a little bit better? Or why can't we help him? be a little bit better in this situation and what can we do to make that happen whether it's a schematic thing whether it's a you know individual work whatever the case may be you know you want to you want to you want to make it so that they maximize this experience that's ultimately everybody's goal one guy that we had i'm going to say we like i'm on the team even though i'm not but i my family said season tickets for 42 years so i I feel like i get to say we um i brandon wright we didn't have him very long He's somebody that I, I would have loved to have seen you tinker with for like a year. Cause he had he's one of those like certain really strong strengths. And he kind of came in the middle of the year. The team's already set. If you'd had a whole training camp with him, I think that one would have been interesting. You can weasel out of this if you want. So that was so so the, first of all, he's a great guy and yeah. and you know, has done really well throughout his, his his career. I think the biggest thing was that was a situation, and Brandon would be the first to tell you, and the other bigs on our roster would be the first to tell you, is we just we just needed to make a move to create more room to breathe yeah. on the roster, right? You just needed, and, and and sometimes you have that. Sometimes you have a log jam at a position, and you know everybody is impacted negatively if you're all splitting time, and people are really empowered when you make a move, regardless of what that move might be, and. Um, but Brandon is, you know, he, he was, a. I didn't get to know him well. We were only together for, you know, a month or so, right. but very classy and, and, you know, handled everything in a great way. You've had the rosters that the Celtics have had, especially the last two years where minutes has been the lingering issue the whole time. Sure. There's only 48 minutes in a game. And I think one thing, one thing fans forget a lot of times is some guys just have trouble playing in little short eight minute stints. You know, I think. People were really surprised how Terry Rozier played in the Summer League. I never get carried away with Summer League because I'm still burned about Kedrick Brown. You probably don't remember. But um, (laughs) Rozier looked like a point guard in Summer League and was really good. Now, 
this Celtics team already has a point guard and Marcus Smart's on the team and Avery Bradley. And if he's going to succeed on this team, it's got to be in eight minute stints. Um, do you think that, first of all, I'm sure, I'm sure you have high hopes that he'll be able to do that, but do you think just some players aren't meant to come off the bench? It's, I think that almost everyone would play better in a long minute starting role. Everyone's, everyone's, you know, effectiveness would be better, even though they're probably playing against, you know, obviously better players. Just because, you know, you feel good about the rhythm of when you're going to go in the game. Yeah. Know that you're going to get multiple opportunities. And what happens is when you're not, is you 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 push, right? You 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 try to do things maybe that you're trying to force things to make a positive impression and. I think one of the hardest things to do, and the people that, that do this, like I have the utmost respect for, are the guys that play one night, play five minutes the next, don't play at all, you know, and, but when they get in, they still shoot 43% from three and, right. you know, always do exactly what they do. You know, as a, as a low-level player, you know, in Division three, you know, I went from a guy that played more in the early part of his career and then and then fortunately for us we got better players through recruiting but played less in the later part of my career and so I got to live that gamut yeah um, of what it feels like to feel like you can play through mistakes and like you're gonna play regardless and there are positives and negatives that come with that too you know having that you know being out quickly and that that's hard and it's really hard and that's that's one of the benefits of the D League for us, you know, being able to send guys up so that if Terry is, you know, not getting as many minutes last year because Isaiah and Marcus are playing great and, and everybody's healthy and everything else, well, he can be feeling really good about himself and get the conditioning so that when we need him to play, like at the end of the year, He's had good moments so that he, you know, the confidence of playing and, and building that over time is a big thing. Marcus, who is one of my favorite players, and I, I get in arguments with people in my life all the time about him because I'm a big believer. He, he's one of those guys that when you bring him off the bench, he's trying to have a 40 minute game in 18 minutes. Like he's trying to do everything, like what you were talking about, the pressing. And he got, eventually, he figured out how to kind of calm himself down a little bit. But he's definitely somebody that's meant for, you know, I think a long-form thing. I also thought Evan Turner was the same. I, I always felt like if he was 30 to 35 minutes, he was a different player than somebody who could just heat up in an instant. And, you know, it's it's one of the hardest things. That's why I was always amazed by, you know, when you look at the Warriors bench, the way Sean Livingston was able to just come in and run the team yep. like he had been playing the whole game and he could just do it in his little eight, nine-minute spurts. Really hard. I voted for him for six man of the year. I, I thought for him to to kind of steer that Warriors plane when Curry was out, that was one of the hardest jobs in the league, and he could always do it. But I just don't think people people think about that enough. But on Marcus Smart, what happens to him these next three years? What do you what do you see what what do you see the arc being? One of the things I really like about Marcus is when Marcus is here, you know he's here. You know, like he's you know he's in the room. You know he's in the game. Um, you know he's in a defensive drill in practice. Um, you just know he's got a presence about him that you know that that he just 
he can he can live in a room and he's got yeah. a, a great competitive spirit about him. And defensively, obviously, he's got probably he's as advanced as any guy that I had ever coached at that age. Not not just from the standpoint of the, the physical toughness and strength and athleticism, but also just the understanding of where to be at the right time. He yeah. clearly had great coaching growing up, and, and he just knows the game. Um, and then offensively, I think that, you know, as, as he continues to progress and, and everybody has talked about his shooting, which I know he's worked really hard on, and especially has continued to, you know, figure out where his best options and best, best um, you know, best shots will come from. But the other parts of his game offensively, I think, have been have really expanded. He's 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 been better off the pick and roll in year two. I thought he did a great job of getting into the paint, um, finishing, kicking out, making plays, especially during the playoffs. But I think his greatest strength will always be that he's a guy that makes winning plays that sometimes aren't you know aren't quantified. Right. And he just has the air factor. Garden a garden of Millsap for eight minutes, or garden Porzingis for six minutes, or you know, guarding the point guard for, for the next four. Like, he's just a guy that'll do anything you ask to help this team win. How long did you think about putting him on Millsap before you actually did it? I was sitting on my couch going, we might have to put Marcus on Millsap, but that's just crazy. And then you did it. Well, you're smarter than I am because I was just thinking about it like in the huddle. I, was, I looked up at the thing and, he, and Millsap had 45. And I thought, you know, I probably should switch, switch and give somebody else a shot. But I'm out you know, of players. sometimes your guys can be playing great defender. You guys could be playing great defense, but the guys just get in such a rhythm that you just have to switch the look just to switch the look. Yeah. And um, and and Marcus, you know, the one thing about Marcus is he is going to do everything in his power to make it incredibly difficult for that person to score the ball. That's and, one thing. You know, he may be smaller, he may be whatever, but he's going to be, he's going to do everything in his power. He is a relentless competitor. And so, you know, that was at the time, it made a lot of sense. But I can't say that, like, it was something that I went in thinking going into the second half. That's one thing I've noticed that you'll do from time to time. If you feel like the other team is clicking too well, you basically just shake the snow globe on them. Like, I'm going to play five point guards right now. You're going to be freaked out by this, and it might knock you out of what you're doing. It does seem like you, that is a tactic. You're going to deny it, but I, I watch all the Celtic games. I know, I know I've, never, I've never heard shake the snow globe. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I do believe in it a little bit. I yeah. do believe in it a little bit, and, and sometimes that works out, and it looks like a good idea, and sometimes everybody looks at you like you're crazy. and um, You know, sometimes they look at you as you're crazy, and it does work out. But I think that, you know, basketball is a game of, of, of rhythm when offenses are playing at their very best. And, you know, defenses are constantly on the attack to try to break your rhythm. And, you know, as a, as a person that, you know, is part of a team that's trying to stop one of these 29 other offenses, you, you constantly want to be disruptive in different ways. I'm giving you 30 seconds to talk about how excited you are to throw out Bradley, Smart, Crowder, Jalen Brown, and Horford at the same time defensively. You have 30 seconds. And and I think that you could throw a couple of other names in there, too, and still um, really be able to move around, you right. know, fly around the court, full rotate, um, and or switch. You know, you, you've got some defensive versatility and flexibility there. Now the 
you know, I've been in the situation before where we're coming off of a very good year defensively, statistically, like like our team is. And, and you can take one of two ways. I mean, you can you can take the approach that we've arrived and not commit to the details and just think it's going to happen, or you can become even better in those little things. Realize that if this group becomes great in details, it's got a chance to be a very good defense because of the way that we can impact the ball. Then then we could be good, but you know it could go either way. So the the best answer I can give you right now is time will tell. But I am excited to try those things, and as we get ready for training camp, those are things that are all over my board. Oh, you're way more excited than that. You totally downplayed that. I I look. I know you have to do what you have to do, but you have first of all you have two adults. You have Amir and you have Horford now Manning, Manning that kind of the five spot, the low post defense. They're always going to know what to know. What that's great. And then Jalen Brown is one of the greatest toys an NBA coach could be handed to. It's like, hey, here's here's a six eight phenomenal athlete with good defensive skills who's raw, but can be thrown at everyone from five foot ten to six foot ten, and and you get to just mold this person for the next four years. I mean, I I yeah, know I'm, I'm looking, I know from my inside sources you were pushing for him. him. Yeah, you were pushing for him a little, I'm, right, in the draft I'm, room. I'm looking. Well, I think the idea of having guys that can guard multiple positions is enormous. And it, you have to have guys that can guard, you know, when I say multiple positions, I think, you know, if you can guard the one and the two, that's that's probably more normal. But if you can guard two through four or even one through four or in some cases, you know, against maybe a rolling five that doesn't post one through five, then that becomes really unique. Yeah. So those guys are invaluable. We all know that. Um but I think Jalen's in a good situation to learn and grow because he's coming into a team that has, you know, some perimeter players that are very established that will make him very uncomfortable in practice yeah. um, every single day. And they'll do it on both ends of the floor. I mean, for him to have to be matched up against, you know, Jay or Avery or, you know, um, if we play him at the foursome, you know, against a Jay or a Jonas, whatever the case may be, those are. Those are hard. Those are hard matchups, and um, those should that should be a great that, that should be the best part of the learning curve for for Jalen. And but the other thing is we have like we have to constantly remind ourselves as a staff that he that he's 19. He's one year removed from one year of college, and right. And I think that you know he's got a high upside, but and we're looking forward to working with him. But I think we we also understand he's got a large learning curve. Let's take a quick break to talk about TheRinger.com and all of our great NBA coverage we have. Kevin O'Connor, Jonathan Jarks, Danny Chow, Shea Serrano, Jason Concepcion, Chris Ryan. I could just keep going and going and going. We are going to really step it up with the NBA, not just with this podcast, but on the BS podcast and then with all the coverage we have. We've been writing about the NBA August, September. Uh, A lot of good stuff, a lot of good pieces we wrote about. Derek Rose, we wrote about what else do we write about Tate? We've had so many good ones. D'Angelo Russell, Carl Anthony Towns, like name a player. We've probably written about them over the last Miles Turner. Uh all kinds of stuff. Uh so we're gonna take it up a notch. Training camp's coming. We're coming. The ringer.com. Check it out. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast because uh once Chris Vernon joins us. We're taking it to another level. Back to the podcast with Brad Stevens. What did you do? You played the Warriors twice last year. 
and you had more success against them during the regular season than anybody. The second game where the Celtics won in Golden State, which was shocking because they only had like six or seven losses, that sent them into a little bit of a spiral. They were never quite the same. Did you figure out something in that game, defensively, offensively, whatever, that you feel like other teams tried to copy after that, or was it a fluke? You know, I didn't feel like it was try to copy by any means. Our, our deal going into those games are we just want to be as solid as we possibly can defensively. Yeah. We want to we want to be we, we first of all you have to make them play 5 on 5. I mean if you, if if you are are running disadvantaged in transition or you don't do your transition defensive assignments against them, you might as well, you know, walk yeah, go home. the bus. But yeah. I think the that's right. It's just a waste of time. But you have to be really disciplined in doing what you're supposed to do throughout the entire game and, you know, make them take as many contested shots as they can and realize, and and I was telling a couple of college coaches that were here today this, I just said, you know, ultimately you can't get bent out of shape by those otherworldly shots that go in. You just got to go down the floor and try to score on the other end. I mean, those things, you you can't make mistakes or compound mistakes because you're concerned about those shots those are going to go in sometimes and but you know i think everybody's a little bit different and you play to the strengths of your team you know as you go and you watch like oklahoma city play against them they played them completely different than we did you know with with switching all five switching all five positions and doing it very effectively for a large portion of that series and and i just think you play to to, to what you what you think your team does best. And, um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that our, our bigs do a very good job of being in position, but our guards, you know, have the ability to be into the body and be into the ball, um, and that's what they do well. The one thing I noticed that the Celtics did against them, which I thought the Clippers emulated in Oklahoma City definitely and Cleveland definitely, was you just made Curry work. You just, from 94 feet, everywhere he went, you had somebody... You were pushing them. You're chipping them off picks. You tried to wear them down a little bit. And I thought by you know the last two rounds, once once that was happening to them, game after game, you know it, it, you could see the effects on them. And it's going to be really interesting to see. I, I'm I'm interested to see how he handles that this summer because now you know ten teams, twelve teams are going to do that against him this year. I got to ask about Durant. Uh, you went to the Hamptons. Tom Brady was was on the plane. I heard Tom Brady was like. Super detailed and prepared. What was Brady like on this trip? So I didn't even know that he was going for sure until that morning. Um, we we were actually uh, the the players and I um, flew together from Atlanta because we had met with Al. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, okay. The evening, the evening before, and um, uh, our owners and and Danny had actually flown back to Boston to 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 basically pick up Tom. And so they, they flew to Boston first and then hopped over to the Hamptons. We met him in the Hamptons. So I wasn't with him for, for any of that. But, um, you know, we quickly went out to, to eat lunch before before the meeting. And, you know, I think, I think it was a great example of, you know, a guy that is uh, obviously an incredibly high achiever, has won at the highest level, has um, is totally committed to being um, the greatest that he can be. Um, and loves being a part of Boston sports. Like he, he, he loves living in Boston. He talked about how um, 
you know, how much his family enjoys Boston, um, how good he feels about raising his kids here, you know, everything else. And, and you know, he's a, he, he really came across as just a normal guy. And, mm. um, you know, I, I was really impressed with him. It was the first time I've really ever spent any time with him. I, I had been to a practice of theirs before where I got a chance to meet him real briefly. But he was great. Uh, and, you know, it was I think that people respect not only the fact that he's accomplished all that he's accomplished, but he's just a really down-to-earth person. Yeah. By all accounts, it had an effect on Durant that, that he was there, and I think the whole presentation went very well. When you left, did you think he was coming? Um, I wasn't sure, but I felt very good about how we presented ourselves. I, I felt, having been through 13 years of recruiting prior to coming to um, to Boston, you know, I, I felt like that, you know, we went in there and I think that we, we focused on the right things to focus on and, and, you know, put our best foot forward. And I felt really good that we, that we had, you know, left no stone unturned. And, um, yeah. so that was that. So it was a, it was a, you know, I, I, I felt good about it from that standpoint for sure. So you were devastated. I, I took that answer to me. You were completely <laughs> devastated. You couldn't believe it didn't come. Uh, what was your lasting impression of Durant after spending two hours well, with him? Well, the, the one thing that I'd say is, and, and this goes to, to a lot of the better players in this league, is I think there's the, the league is in such good hands with its, with its young players. They, they, they love basketball. They love to work on the game. Yeah. Um, they're passionate about the game and everything else. And, and um, you know, hey, that, that not only not only um, that meeting, but just just having a chance to spend time with our guys and, and the, the night before with Al, I think that those things, um, you know, are very clear. And, you know, certainly wish him the best. Uh, the Celtics did end up getting the second best free agent in the uh, summer of 2016. How much of the appeal to Al Horford of Al Horford to you was talent and how much of it was character slash chemistry? Uh, both. I mean, it was a huge, all that stuff is, is all wrapped in one, um, to me. And I think that's part of a talent. So I would say that, you know, Al is a very efficient offensive player. He doesn't turn the ball over. He's expanded his game to the three-point line. He's always been a guy that has made plays, you know, versus in the post, but also in the mid-range. Um, and he's not only expanded his game to three-point line; he's done it really well. Uh, he's capable of carding a couple of positions. He's a very good pick-and-roll defender. Uh, he's capable of flying around if you want to rotate and guard guards. So he's got all the positives from a basketball standpoint. And then, you know, I, I and I've said this before: he winning's good enough for him. Like, you know, he, all he's ever done is win. And, yeah. and he's just, and, you know, you, you just feel like after sitting down with him that, you know, it, it's not about the other stuff. It's about, do I feel good about my environment? How can I positively impact my environment using my strengths? And, you know, and I think that guys like that that have achieved like that, you know, he's been, I think, the nine straight playoffs during his time and before that he won two national championships at Florida that's a really good guy for us to have in our locker room with what's otherwise a pretty young team yeah and you have a really close team Isaiah Thomas just got got married and I heard like most of the team was at the wedding like that doesn't usually happen in the NBA so you I'm sure you guys have to 
put a lot of thought and care into who you're adding to this because you don't want to mess it up, right? Well, that, you know, one of the things, and we talked about it earlier, is, you know, you try to figure out what strengths fit best together, and who knows? You know, time will tell if, if how good we are. But, um, but I think that that and the fact that how will that person impact, you know, our overall environment of hard work, you know, and, and, and focus and drive to be really good. And I think you have to answer those questions before you ultimately mm. choose somebody in the draft, trade for them, or uh, ultimately sign them in free agency. And obviously we think Al, Al makes us better in all of those ways. You know, I, I feel like I had a partial, even though I didn't go to any home games last year, I, mean, I think I went to one. But for all the Boston fans, big win because he said – one of the reasons he wanted to come to Boston was every time he played a big game in Boston, he was so impressed by the crowd that he just wanted to be involved in it, you know, eight, nine months a year. I was like, oh, what a kudos to the Celtics fan. Because I, you rarely hear free agents say, I just like playing here. It would be fun to play here all the time. I thought that was very successful. I think we should throw a party for ourselves. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think this. I think that I don't, I don't, I never read that he had said that or whatever the case may be, but... I can tell you having been in those environments and wow. I mean, it's a, it, as you know, it's a special place to yeah. coach and play. Well, I think, you know what it was? I think his dad said it, but he didn't disagree. So I feel like he said it because if my dad said something about me, I would, he would rep, you know, dads represent the kids. <laughs> All right. We're doing, um, we're doing a speed round. You ready? Oh yeah. There's no way to, we- to yeah, there's n- no way to weasel out of some of these. Um, Best home crowd NBA that's not Boston. One that you feel like affects the game the most. You have to pick one. You can't name six. Whoever's winning. Oh, that, you're, that's you're, always the best crowd you're, you're playing. And whoever's team is playing the best. You're so, yeah. So, you can you can process of elimination. So, this is my my goal is to try to yeah, this quickly is, <laughs> give you the weaselly answer. <laughs> this, is, this would be hilarious. So, There's some you're going to have to answer. Yeah. Uh, single, okay. single most unstoppable player you've played against last three years since you got to Boston? Single most unstoppable player. Yeah, the one uh, you're just in a meeting now with. that you- one I'm weaseling out of because what happens is is you name one and the other seven make it make you miserable that you didn't name them. Okay, I'm going to answer that one for so you. I'm weaseling out of that one for sure. You go ahead and answer that one. And tell I'm going to answer that one for you. It's LeBron James because in the last three years, Crowder was the only one who could really even bother him a little bit. Now we have Jalen Brown to throw at him, but... Oh, you'll answer this one. What is the biggest rule change that the NBA actually needs? You know, I the one thing, so so I've been fortunate enough to, to be in these meetings um, and also to be, um, you know, obviously in our coaches' meetings. I am really impressed with how quickly and how um, how much people want to make this game the very best it can be. And I love the, I love, um, I love, I think the, the idea of, of taking, um, the intentional foul away for each of the last two minutes of each quarter is a good thing for the game. Uh, and I also, and I do think, um, that I would be most interested in, and I don't know if it's a good rule change or not, but I'd be most interested in, in a late game where we had um, two timeouts in an advance, like the D-League has. Yeah. 
Um, don't know that it, when it's going to happen. Don't know if it will happen. Don't know. You know, I know that, um, you know, the D-League has messed with that and everything else, and we've certainly had discussions about it because we discuss everything that's that's done in that. Um, but I, but I, I think that that would be a cool little twist toward the end of the games. I would make halftime four minutes longer. I would get rid of— I would of, make halftime six minutes shorter. Halftime short. Interesting. I can never I get would. back to my seat in time. Well, because they have to cover the TV money, right? So the two timeouts that bother me the most are the 10-minute mark of the second quarter and the 10-minute mark of the fourth quarter. I just don't think we I'm need them. Put those, put those minutes toward halftime, and then near the end, I would make 20-second timeouts 20 seconds instead of an hour, an hour and 20 seconds, which is how long they take usually. And I don't understand how coaches are allowed to call a timeout after a timeout. We just had a timeout. <laughs> How how am I calling yeah, timeout right. from a timeout? That makes no sense. Um, I know we coaches need more love rest that, and we need more time to think. I, the, no, uh, no, you don't. The, I, I, I I like less time to think. Let's. I like the FIBA, the flow of the FIBA games. I thought was really kind of interesting. I wish the NBA would learn from it. I heard a great coach speak uh, at a clinic, and he said, "Why do you take your team in for halftime?" And I thought, that's a pretty good question because we're always talking about starting the third quarter is so important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you said, not a lot of people are back to their seats at that time anyways. Um, but, you know, uh, we are all, as coaches, wanting to start the third quarter well, that's for sure. What's your ideal number for an NBA regular season for games? Because we can all agree 82 is too many. What If you could pick any number, what would you pick? It's a good question. I would say that, um, I, you know, I understand, and, and I haven't put enough time and thought into it. But I think that, obviously... The, the maximization of this from a health and wellness standpoint for our players is, is of the utmost on each of these teams. And I think a lot of teams, and you know certainly us included, are putting a lot of resources into trying to help this help us maximize this 82-game schedule because it is tough on their bodies. And I sit there on many nights as a coach and think, you know, these guys are awfully special yeah. to be doing what they're doing night in, night out. That was That was – a misdirect. You took the answer, and then you you answered another question that I, that was really impressive. I I would say seventy five games. I think you get rid of seven four out of five night situations if you if you just got to seventy five or seventy six. I don't think this season loses anything, and yeah, I would like yeah, to see them do that. Um, will you ever get used to coaching against former Butler guys? Yeah, that's. I mean that's I hope I hope we get I hope we get used to coaching against a bunch of Butler guys for a long time, right? I mean that's that'd be the as a as the that's the college team that I'm completely all in rooting for every game and everything else. No, it's it's fun to see not only, you know, our former players doing well in the NBA, but we've got guys that are you know, I'm watching them on um synergy playing in leagues overseas against, you know, potential um draft eligible players every year right and so it's it's fun to watch them have success and they're having it all over the globe quick break to talk about our friends at slink tv slink tv the best way to watch live tv on your turf for twenty dollars a month get more than 20 live channels including espn and tnt plus your favorite entertainment and news amc cnn adult swim ifc other top networks you can also add on channel packs like the Sports Extra Package for just $5 a month extra. No installation, no extra gear, no annual contracts, and easy online cancellation. 
You just need an internet connection. You're ready to go. Start watching for seven days free at sling.com slash Bill Simmons. Get Sling TV on your favorite device. Restrictions apply. How many times a day do you think of the half-court shot he missed by a half inch? Uh, I don't think of it any times. Uh, not, not that many a day because I just think about that game in and of itself probably once uh, every other week. And then anytime I am watching a championship game of any kind, whether it is the NCAA tournament, Little League World Series, um, you know, FIBA, whatever the case may be, and it's getting towards the end, and there's any um, confetti involved, I feel it again. It was the sports movie that had the wrong ending. Yeah. <laughs> it did. It had ninety nine percent of the right movie, and then they screwed up the end. They shot the they shot the That's wrong right. ending. Uh, who was more disappointed that night, Butler fans or North Carolina fans? Yes. Yeah, so, so the the funny part about that story is that we were both probably really disappointed. Um, but when I was coaching at um, in that in that Final Four, we were we we're still relatively I don't want to say unknown, but we weren't as well known as we were a week later. Um, and so my email at Butler was still on the website, and so I got peppered by Carolina fans over the course of 48 hours. Um, and I didn't get a chance to read really many of them, and certainly not respond to any of them. Um, but uh, but it was uh, it was entertaining reading uh, the rest of that week. Yeah, they, they certainly were rooting for us. God. Luckily, they didn't send me any after the game, like killing me. <laughs> right. Um, that would not have been as enjoyable, and I, and I might have responded to those. Well, it's, I mean, you couldn't have done, you guys couldn't have done more in that game. Is there a world in which you just stayed at Butler for 40 years and just retired when you were 70 and that just would have been your life? You know what? I think that if if you're gonna if you're gonna coach anywhere in college for that long, it's 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 got to be a super special place and. Um, the town has to be really meaningful. You, know, the school has to be really meaningful, and so for me, that was that place. And um, you know, and it was really hard to leave. We looked at this not only as a as an opportunity to to grow and improve as a coach, but to to really challenge and, and make myself almost uncomfortable um, in a way. And and that's been you know a a, a new fun adventure for our entire family. Yeah, uh, but the best one of the one of the very best parts about taking this job with regard to Butler has been that we can still be Butler and Butler only when it comes to being a fan, and we've really enjoyed that. My wife's on the board there; like, um, she's actually she's actually spends four weekends a year there that I don't even get to go there. So we're very still tied into the school, and and you don't always get to do that if you take a new job in college. Uh, certainly, if you went to a different school, you wouldn't get to do that. So by the end of that sixth year at Butler as a head coach, I had kind of come to the realization after having some calls from some other schools that spring into that summer that, you know, if I was going to leave, it was going to be for the NBA, but it would be really hard to leave for another school. So, yeah, I was going to ask that. So you you must have been courted, especially after you made the championship game you must have been courted by all these other big universities did you ever even tiptoe close close toward one of them or was just always butler 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 i was i was certainly called by people um and um 
you know, I had I had talked to people or heard from people, but I had never met with another school. You yeah. Know? And and the point of that was is that you know I, I just felt like if you're if you're if you're ultimately, um, you know, I, I had to think that ultimately, why would I leave Butler? to compete against Butler. And that was always the part that came back to me. Like, I, I just wouldn't be able to do that. And, yeah. and Butler had treated our family so well. Um, they had gone out of their way for our family. And you got to remember, this is a place that I started working at. I was a volunteer when I started, and my first paycheck was, I think, you know, seventeen or $18,000 when I was finally hired on the staff. And and that was the greatest time ever. I mean, you get a, you get, you, you work for for nothing, but you're you're living with your buddies, and you're just trying to make ends meet. But you're learning so much, and you're just thrilled to be a part of coaching. Um, that you know, we we really felt a, and still do. We feel we still feel a great deal of debt towards Butler. How many, how many end of the game inbounds plays, end of the quarter, end of the game in inbounds plays. Do you have on some crazy Rolodex in your master computer in the Brad in the Brad Stevens uh, lair? Well, luckily it's all computerized, right? We yeah. have um, we have we have all the after timeout plays um, from each year, and that, the ones you've we already really used. Get a lot out from. So you have the ones you've already all used. All that we've already used okay. to just kind of go back to to refresh as you start a new year. Some things that worked, some things that didn't, et cetera. Um, sometimes you see something within a play that you wish you would have done a little bit differently. But then I get so much from from watching uh, our opponents play and watching how other teams attack them. I, I've every coach that has coached in this league that I've been fortunate enough to coach against has taught me something or given me a wrinkle that you know I've stolen to try to use for our team and. And that also goes for, you know, hey, everything that happened in the Olympics and that we saw and that we have on film and everything else, we're, we're, just, trying to, we're just trying to help ourselves grow and get better at this. And th- that's part of the fun of coaching is it's, it's, there's constant challenge in the change and, um, because you can run a play, but if that play doesn't fit your personnel, it's not a good play. And you can run a much more simpler play that everybody else runs. And if you have the right guy doing it, it looks and works like a million bucks. Well, you know who's on your corner is Steve Kerr, because when he was when the year before he decided he was going to coach the Warriors, he studied all these games and he was jotting down plays and all this stuff. And it seems like you and him and maybe Popovich are the ones that enjoy. I, I artistry is the wrong word, but I'm using it anyway. The artistry of the after timeout plays, like it's it's the you you both seem to get real joy out of when they work. More more than any coach I've seen. I know you're not going to answer that, but I just had to say it. Is that right? Yeah. I, 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 was, I was hoping I wouldn't show my cards. Yeah. Um, no, the, the, the end of the day is, you know, you, uh, you draw some up and some work, and you draw some up and then some don't work. But it's, it is a fun – to me, the, the, the tactical stuff is a fun part of the game. And, you know, again, it's, it truly is like, like every single scouting report or every single time you watch somebody else play – you pick up multiple new wrinkles, and maybe it's something you've used in the past. But mm. you, you know, you watch another one of these coaches, you know, twist the screen around or or just do something with a different angle. And I mean, at, at some point, you would think after 16 years in coaching that it would all be the same. But there's just constantly 
things you learn every time you start watching tape, and it's 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 a fun part about the game. Is it true that you talk to Popovich and Belichick every once in a while to pick their brains? Um, you know, I have I have been fortunate enough to um, meet with both of them. I would say that every once in a while is probably um, more frequent than actually is. Yeah. Um, but I but I have been able to meet with both of them and. You know, I think they're both at the at the top of their respective games for a reason. I think they're incredible coaches, um, get the very most out of their people, but also have figured out how to simplify things to to just what makes their team go and what they need to do to best coach their team. And, yeah. You know, it's easy to get your focus off of that, and and I think that those guys just it looks like they they're able to operate in this area where you know they know exactly what needs to be done to be successful and they know when they need to change they know when they need to stay the same they know what to emphasize they know how much to emphasize it they've been doing it for a long time at such a successful level it'd be silly not to pick their brains you know belichick even though you guys handle the media so differently um and you're just different people and he's a lot older than you a lot of the stuff that he does is the stuff that you do. Like, for instance, after the Pats beat the Cardinals, there was a post-game speech that he gave to the team, and he was just like, hey, we didn't win this game in the last three hours. We won it all week with the preparation and the practice and how hard you guys worked, and that's what won And it was like exactly like something you would say. He's always about do your job, prepare, be ready, be ready for any situation, it, it it's not that complicated and yet not that many people do it. I don't, I, that's the part I don't understand about coaching. Like it would just seem like just, just copy the people that are doing the best. Right. But nobody does that. Well, I think the hard, the hardest part is not getting in, into the emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And, and I think that no matter how process oriented you are, no matter how um, focused on the next task you can be. That's the that's one of the biggest challenges in this game, in my opinion. And that's and, and I'm sure it is in football too. And you know, I'm sure as he's walking into that room, it's you know, you're starting a year and you're thinking, okay, number one is this validates the work that we've done up to this point. Um, and number two is, but this won't mean anything unless we keep doing it. Yeah. And and so like even you know after the biggest wins that I've ever been a part of those are sometimes you walk in the locker room and you have like the the the, the most mundane post game talk ever because the bottom line is you're thinking about the next game on the schedule not necessarily what just happened because you know that there's a reaction to adversity and success and there's a you know human nature can can affect you in both of those Two more questions then we're going. Uh Yep. Basketball's changed. The NBA has changed so much the last ten years, from '06 to '16, with the three-point shooting, um, the fact that people are just throwing away long twos for the most part. For the fact that basketball's gotten smaller, we've seen the power forward not become irrelevant, but being phased out in a lot of ways. People only playing one teams only playing one big at a time. Where do you see basketball ten years from now? What do you think the next trend is? Um, that's a great question. I, I think the the three point thing is is probably going to be hard to argue against, just because of the the um, the math. You know, the simple statistics of of that a three point shot made one out of three times is equal to a two point shot made one out of two times, 
over the course of time in a large sample. So I think that that's, that's probably going to be hard to argue. I think the game will always be dependent on the players that are at its most elite level at that time. So, you know, if you have a an era where you have a, you know, a Chamberlain and Russell and, and, and people like that, then then everybody's going to have to scheme or find people to account for those guys. Um, and when you have this this current focus on skill and spacing and speed and everything else, it's going to take a pretty special group of players to change the way the game is played because, you know, we were fortunate at Butler to be forced to be different. Yeah. And that was because we couldn't recruit or we weren't able at that time to recruit the big that, you know, inevitably would be courted by everybody in the country. And so we had to recruit smaller guys to play up a position. And it really turned out to be beneficial. And and one of the things that I learned is that, man, in a 48-minute game, speed wins. And, you know, and the ability to spread people out and drive the ball and have multiple playmakers on the floor that's pretty difficult and you're forced as another opponent to as the other opponent to to match up to try your best to defend that um, because you, it's very very difficult to take enough advantage of it on the other end you might score once or twice in the post but you know that that may not be sustainable as teams start to swarm and use their speed versus size that's a great point about how the talent pool determines the style of play. I wish I had thought of that. I'm stealing that from you. Because, like, in well, we, the... We literally... Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we didn't recruit... We, we made a major emphasis to recruit bigs that could fly around. Yeah. And we ended up only recruiting one true center that I, that, that I got my entire time there. And, um, and that was Andrew Smith. And, but he, the one thing that he could do is he could fly up and down the court, and he could really move laterally. And... Um, and so he fit with how we played and we right. were in a good way, kind of forced into that. You know, we were, we were, I guess we were fortunate to be forced into just playing faster and smaller and more skilled. Cause in the eighties, there were so many good centers. Everybody was like center centers, oh, twin towers and everybody right. trying to match up with the Celtics. And then you had Ewing and you had Olajuwon and Shaq coming and morning coming. And it was this whole era and it dictated how everyone played. And now I think there's so many guards that can create that. It seems like we're shifting into this new era, a little bit like what you did the last couple of years where it's like, yeah, we're just going to play Isaiah Thomas, Marcus Smart, and every Bradley at the same time. Yeah. They're three of our best players. Well, Why wouldn't I, we? Yeah. And I think that's really, really true. But I also think there's a, you know, there, there's the reality that, you know, those guys, those guys will be exceptionally tough to, to guard, Regardless, and no matter no matter who's in the game or what area you're in, the more that you can space, spread the floor, and have multiple ball handlers on on the floor, you right. know, the better. But inevitably, inevitably, everybody will be forced to play a little bit differently if the if the you know if if great low post multiple great low post players are back in the game. But that's not the way that kids are growing up wanting to play. I know. And I saw that firsthand, um, having watched kids from, you know, late middle school into the high school. Very rarely did I recruit a kid that was a four. In fact, I don't think I ever recruited a kid that was a four that said, I want to play the five. Even though it would have been totally beneficial for his career to play the five, because he would have been playing against slower people that he would have exposed. 
you know, it was always a combo wanted to be a one, a three wanted to be a two, a four wanted to be a three, a five wanted to be a four. And that's just the way that, for whatever reason, um, we're in an era that kind of feels that way. And everyone wants to shoot threes. Everybody. If Shaq, young Shaq right now would be working on his three-point shot <laughs> instead of his jump hook. Last question, then you have to go. Could you ever coach your son like Doc Rivers has been doing the last two years? I was told by somebody to nope. ask you this. Okay. No. So my son, my son, I, I did get asked the other day, who's my favorite um, player that I've ever coached? And and even though my son is 10, I got to say my son. But the other day I was, I was working him out and I, you know, I was having him do some stuff that was probably, um, you know, he asked to work out because, because I want to be very careful that I'm not, you know, the right. dad that's a coach that's telling him to work out. So he asked to work out. We're doing shooting and all that stuff. And then said, all right, we'll just drive a few off of the catch and, and maximize your steps and maybe take a long step and finish on the other side of the rim. And he was struggling because it was a unique concept. And, you know, he kind of muttered under his breath, like, Hey, I'd, I'd rather work out with somebody who knew what he was talking about, you know, and, and that was a, that was an eye opening thing that, you know, even, even with my favorite player that I've ever coached, I, I'm going to have days where I'm a little frustrated with him. So I, I learned once again, that coaching can be a challenging profession. Brad Stevens, I, uh, I really appreciate the time. Really looking forward to watching the team this this year. People forget, 48 wins last year. Added the number three pick in the draft, added Al Horford. So I have high hopes. I'm sure you do too. Thanks so much for the time. Good luck this season. Anytime y'all want to see me appreciate again. Appreciate it, Bill. All right. Rewind this track right here. Close your eyes. And picture me rolling. All right, that's it for the podcast. Please subscribe to The Ringer NBA Show, especially with Chris Vernon coming. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast, The BS Podcast, and don't forget about Any Given Wednesday on HBO. Don't forget about TheRinger.com. Don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network. Don't forget about SeatGeek. Remember, download the free SeatGeek app or just go to SeatGeek.com. And on The BS Podcast, every looks like every late Wednesday night, early Thursday, that's when we're guessing the lines with Cousin Sal. Uh, just in time for the Don Julio shot of the week on Thursdays. And then uh, on Fridays, Mike Lombardi has joined the PS podcast every Friday along with Joe House where we do the Callaway Par 3. We pick three games. And I'm going to try to sneak a third guest in there every every episode. We'll see how that goes. But that's, that's my schedule. Wednesday, Friday, mostly football until NBA starts. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Brad Stevens. And check me out on any given Wednesday and on the BS podcast later in the week. Sayonara.